If you were to um, visit any of the beautiful coastal towns in this beautiful region and walk down to the harbor, if it's good weather and if the lighting's just right, you might find one or two artists, their easel up, paints out. And if you come on them early in the day, you might see something along the line of a sketch, not at all unlike this. And you'd immediately recognize there's talent there because sketches are our work of art all in themselves. If they offered for you to take it home just as it is, you might say, well, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take that. I know where I could hang that up. But if you were to go through the day and check back as they pursued their work, you would see that that sketch was just the structure onto which they would then add color, shading, and lighting. And then eventually, they would begin to work those fine little details. Bare sketches become ships with depth and color and with chipping paint. By the end of the day, you would see something that would let you know that this was not just talent, this was from a master. In fact, we call those things masterpieces. The Bible says that we are God's workmanship. We are his masterpiece. Psalm 19, verse 1, all creation declares the glory of God. Its expanse declares his craftsmanship. Same idea in Paul's words that we are God's workmanship. Just think about that for a minute. The same God that created all the beauty around you is using that same creative work in you. See, his current medium of choice are the hearts of his children. That's why Paul calls us his new creation. It's very easy early on in our spiritual journey to recognize the hands of that master creator. When we recognize our need for forgiveness and when we see the, the work of Christ on the cross as the remedy for that and that God offers us forgiveness and birth into his family, and when we first take that step and plunge into that life, it's a powerful thing, but we're not meant to stay there. It's not the end of the journey it's merely the end of the search. It's the beginning of the journey. God wants to pursue his work in us. I'd like you to look at this verse from Philippians chapter 1. I'd like us to say this together. I am certain that God who began a good work in you will continue his work until it is finally finished. This is what God is about in us. When we first come to faith, if we were able to look down the road and see what God had in mind way down there, we would be awestruck by what he sees. We think what he's done now is pretty awesome. Wait till he puts the color and the shading and works the detail in us. He is committed to that process. The Bible calls that process of God finishing the work in us, which if we were to finish that verse, will only really be done on the day we stand before Christ. In other words, our whole life is a process of, of God doing his masterful work in us. The Bible refers to that in several ways. It calls it growth, growing up, maturity, fruit, technical terms. It calls it sanctification. But the one thing the Bible never calls it is optional. We are all to grow. Before we come to our passage today in 1 Peter, as we continue our quick look through the book of 1 Peter in our summer months. I want to take you to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. 
We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Let me just contrast this use of the phrase milk with Paul's teaching elsewhere where he says, as newborn babes long for pure milk of the word that by it you may grow. That's an encouragement to people that have come to faith and milk is the right meal for them to begin to grow. This is a problem because these people should be into adult food by now and they haven't moved on to it. Verse 13, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of the hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal life, and God permitting, we will do so. There is some very startling information being put out here by the writer of Hebrews. The first thing you need to understand is that the very things that we call major doctrines, and indeed they are, They are the doctrines on which the church is built, the work of Christ, our need for forgiveness, the the spiritual death that we have before we come to Christ, our being baptized into the body of Christ, our gift of eternal life, all those things that are at the core of who we are, that are at the basis of how we start this journey, those are the very things that the writer of Hebrews says it's time to move from as long as it's just about that conversion experience, if we're always going back there, then there's nothing new to talk about. We're like athletes who peaked in high school and are in their 30s, and they can't move on with life because all they can remember was that one play in their senior year. That was the good old days. They peaked too early. (laughs) There's so much more life ahead of them. It's not that we're to leave those things behind. We're to add to them, move on to maturity. What are the things you move on to? Does it say you take on more and more responsibility in the church? The longer you're there, the more more responsibility and prestige you have. Or maybe you, you get deeper into all of these doctrines to the point where you can talk about them in Greek and Hebrew, and you've got your systematic theology down. All that's really important, but is that... What the writer of Hebrews says we move on to? No. Look at verse 13 again. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with what? The teaching about, what's the next word? Righteousness. What is righteousness? It's rightness. It's our life being conformed to reflect who Christ is. So think about what this passage is saying. Our focus of spiritual maturity is all about here and here. It's all about what we know, and certainly if it's about knowing God more and more, spiritual maturity is all about that at the center if it's about nothing else, but not just intellectually. And it's not just about developing the skills to serve and to make a difference. What God's about, what spiritual maturity is, is about life change. It's about us being changed from the inside out 
increasingly reflecting the very image of Christ. How are you doing with that? Have you ever seen people that have age but don't have wisdom? Have you ever seen churches that are filled with people that seem to know how to run their church but they don't seem to know how to run their lives? They don't know how to run together, always in conflict, petty differences, dividing them. Have you ever seen that? I guarantee that is not a community where God is at work producing righteousness in their body. They've confused what it means to be mature. And chances are they're still very much focused on milk. You have to move on. So the question is, what does that look like? If moving beyond the core of the gospel so that the gospel transforms us and produces real change, if God changing you and me is the ultimate work that God is pursuing in Christ in us and that he's committed to doing until the very end, how do we know that's happening? What should it look like? There ought to be checkpoints along this journey that we can look at and say, here's a sign that God's at work. The passage we're in today, as we continue our study in 1 Peter, is one such passage. We're in chapter 3, and we are picking up at verse 8. We're just going to read down through verse 12 today. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I'd like you to think of this passage as checkpoints for the spiritual journey. Uh, In order to get the background to this, let's just take apart the very first word, finally. There are actually three words that make up that simple phrase, to de telos. The word to is just the definitive article. The next word is de. That word means building up to this, the culmination. Moreover might be another word for it. So in other words, whatever Peter's referring to, he's saying moreover or especially or all of this builds to what I'm about to say now. And then the final word, telos, means completeness or something we aim for. It's like um, the word uh, telescope, when a, a man at sea takes the, what do they call those things that they used to have, just the single thing that they pull out? Spyglass? Okay, thank you. Any of those things. <laughs> and he pulls the first stage out and then pulls the second stage out so that it's telos, it's fully extended. So what Peter's saying here is that whatever he has built up to, this is the culmination of it. That's what he's saying. 
So what is it the culmination of? It is the concluding section to this part of his letter that begins in chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. What this whole section is about is Peter presenting a strategy for living in what for the people he's writing to was a very hostile culture. What should the world see when they look at us? How do we respond to culture? And the whole teaching was wrapped up in that verse 12. Live such good lives before the culture around you that even if they begin saying things of you that are wrong, in the end they will come to faith And when you stand before Christ, they will be standing side by side with you, glorifying God. Listen to me. The way we change culture is not by becoming a political movement, by setting ourselves as a hostile opponent to people. Cultures are changed when lives are turned over to Christ. You and I, that's our job. We should do our part to be good citizens, Peter says. We should be good workers, and we should have good families. All those arenas are where we ought to live such lives before the world that when they see us, they'll say, I want some of that. I need some of that. And they'll come to faith. So that is the context now as Peter says, and ultimately, all of that leads to this. This is what it means to live that good life. When God has worked in us and transformed us, this is what it looks like. I see nine things in here, and we're going to work through them. The first is unity. The Greek word is harmonious. Jesus prayed that we would be one. That was part of his priestly prayer before the cross on the night he was betrayed that began with him saying, Father, I don't just pray for these, but for those who will believe in me. I pray that they will be one. Jesus looked down the corridor of time, saw you and me and all those believers that would come to follow, and he knew the one thing the enemy would try to do is to pull us apart, which we have allowed him to do over and over and over again. Jesus said, oh, Father, let them be one like you and I are one. And that's a mark of the transforming work of God. We stay united This is not the same as uniformity or unanimity or union. Uniformity is looking and thinking alike. That's not what we want. In fact, that would be boring. God made us with variety. It's part of the beauty of the body of Christ. It's not uniformity. It's not unanimity, 100% agreement. It's not what the Bible calls for except on the core issues. There's a great opportunity for us to bring our varied perspectives to bear and find a greater truth than each of us can find on our own. It's not unanimity, and it's not union. Union is affiliation for advantages. We're not that. This is about a common bond. The root word for harmonious is phylos. It's brotherly relationship. And what the word harmonious means is oneness of heart. It's about our passions. And what should our passion be? Our passion should be for Jesus, his model, his message, and his mission. Those are the things that unite us. 
mature people have moved to that, and they understand that's a whole lot more important than the things that divide us. When I talk to pastors outside of New England, I talk about one of the beauties of pastoring churches in New England because it is so post-Christian now. It's the largest collection of states that is uh, the lowest and least churched in the whole of the United States. That's a tragic thing, but the beauty of serving here is that it's like being on the mission field, which means that pastors come together and pray in the name of Jesus. Churches unite on the basic things, a passion for Christ and to make him known, and in other places because we still have the remnants of the Christian era and Christian culture and the Bible belt. They don't associate with each other in the way that happens up here. Maybe being in a culture that is unchristian pushes our maturity level in terms of our unity. I don't know. But that ought to mark us. Second thing we're going to call empathy. It's just simply this word, be sympathetic. The word sympathetic means to feel with. This is not just taking note, being aware of, posting needs on a prayer list. The word sympathy in the Bible means my heart beats in rhythm with yours so that what makes you happy, I experience that joy. And what makes you sad, I experience that sadness. Some of us have a gift of that. Others of us have to grow in those areas, but all of us in some way are to show that checkpoint on our spiritual journey. Paul puts it this way in the book of Romans. Let's say it together. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Be of the same mind towards one another. The same mind. In other words, I get it. I understand. See, that type of sympathy takes time to be in real community with one another. Weeping, rejoicing, supporting. Third uh, is the word brotherly, which is camaraderie quality of relationships. If you're not a believer that's in spiritual community, then you are an immature believer, period. We take great delight in mentioning the mystics who separated themselves from culture with the idea that they can find God more meaningfully in a cave or in isolation. There's certainly seasons to come away, but if that's where your life is, if you're a spiritual hermit, you're not a mature person. You're hiding God is not meant to be found in isolation. You and I, each of us are the temples of God. I want to find God with power. I'm going to get together with you and find, find him at work in you. Community is critical to spiritual maturity, camaraderie. Fourth, compassion. That's kind of obvious. If sympathy is entering into someone's experience so that we feel it and understand it and embrace it, compassion is the willingness to step in and act on it. Compassion's less of a feeling in Scripture than it is the acting out for the good of others around us. Compassion. Five, humility. Humble-minded is the actual word, and what it means is lowly or bowed down in our thinking. Take the physical posture of being bowed down as a servant and turn that into an attitude. That's the Bible's word for humility. Sometimes we confuse humility with insecurity. If someone is confident and assertive, we would hardly ever consider that person humble because to us, humble is a person that doubts their abilities, is sort of self-effacing, 
quiet behind the scenes, willing to be the servant. We confuse confidence with arrogance. We confuse fear and brokenness with humility. Humility is not measured by how strong a person is. That's giftedness. That's role and body. Who you are, whether you posture yourself as the one that is always washing the floor or the one that dares to stand and lead, you need to be confident in that calling. Humility says, I'm not defined by that. Who I am only and forever is because of what Christ has done. We have pseudo-humility. Maturity understands and embraces true humility. Six, this one he's going to flesh out more. We're going to call it mercy. Let's read the verse. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with a blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Mercy, how do you respond to people hurting you, overlooking you, offending you? breaking promises, not meeting your expectations? How do you react when people disappoint you on any level? How do you react when you hear that something bad happened to those people (laughs) or that person that offended you? What, What really happens in your heart when that happens? Do you think to pray for them? Is there a part of you that goes, yes? If on some level... You harbor bitterness. You live with that. It's like a scab that when, like when some of us are kids, we just love to peel those scabs off. won't tell you what my brother used to do with it after he peeled it. A lot of us, that's what we do with our hurts. We never let them heal. Peter believes that this is so important that he doesn't just list it as a quality like we've done so far. He does some teaching on it. He says, this is what it looks like. And there are four things he says. The first thing that we do if we're growing in mercy is that we refuse to get even. Do not repay evil for evil. Second thing that we do is we refrain from an ugly response. We don't respond to an insult with an insult. Some of us are very gifted at that, but we don't do it. Third, we return good for evil. Instead of getting down in it and pushing back, give a blessing. And then fourth, we're merciful by remembering our calling. To this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. This is interesting. Peter says, one path towards God's blessing our life is to remember that he's called us to be his instruments of mercy. Therefore, when someone harms us, or when someone harms somebody that we love, or when someone harms the name of God, our response to them is either a path towards self-satisfaction, which in the end is sin, or a path towards God's continued blessing. God's called us to the path of blessing, and if I want to receive that blessing, I need to give it. Mercy. Critical piece, a checkpoint in the spiritual journey. Let's move on. And then we talk about discretion. Keep your tongue. Now, this section is a direct quote from Psalm 34. So the rest of our pieces, 7, 8, and 9, all flow from this. So the first is discretion, and that's found in the phrase, keep your tongue. Whoever would love and see good deeds must keep his tongue from evil. Man. 
We've got this voice in our head. It's always questioning and challenging and protecting us and whispering the worst-case scenario to us about people and about circumstances. And because that's all going on in our head, it comes out of our mouth because that's what the Bible says happens. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever said something and then said, you know, I, I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry. I, I, I wish I hadn't said that. Please forgive me. The correct parts of that phrase are, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> Please forgive me. But the one thing we can never say if it comes out of our mouth is we didn't mean to say it. We wish we hadn't meant to say it, but where did it come from? It's in there. That's why it's so important to recognize that internal struggle. But while we're working on that, we need to guard this so that what comes out is only blessing, not cursing. Produces life, not death. Let's say this together, Psalm 141. Set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. There's a pretty honest confession. Lord, I can't do it. Would you please just lock it and stand in front of it Put a guard over my mouth. Discretion is a mark of maturity. Just quickly, two others. Purity. He must turn from evil and do good. The more we look like Christ, the more we live like him. Period. There's no compartmentalizing. You don't speak one language on Sundays or in the community of faith and live it by a different set of priorities when you're paying your bills, at school, working, choosing family time, and doing private time. One who is a follower of Christ will be marked by it in every arena of their life. I heard a story this week of a family who, when their child was younger at their last church, they were in a pretty active youth group, and that child would run across other kids from the church at school, and, and one in particular that he first ran into, he started talking about how excited he was about the retreat coming up on the weekend, and uh, she went, what retreat? What are you talking about? And he went on and began to explain it. And she kept saying, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he realized what was going on. She was denying any knowledge or participation in a church youth group because her friends were around her. Well, that's junior high. But let me ask you a question. Where do you think she got that from? That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about authentic purity, that we're making the right choices, purity. And then finally, the, the last checkpoint on the spiritual journey that God's called us to is peace. Seek peace and pursue it. To be a mature believer is to recognize that we need to aggressively bring shalom peace into our relationships. That because Christ has forgiven us, there is nothing that will ever keep us from being united so long as I am willing to bring mercy and to seek resolution. It's interesting. Seek and pursue. Most of us sit back and believe we're victims of the acts of others in our broken relationships. The Bible says we're responsible to be able to say before God, we have done what we could do. Whether or not everybody goes along with it or every situation uh, results in unity, we need to be marked as those that are peacemakers. When we come into a process like that, the first thing that happens isn't hurt first thing that happens is listening and understanding. These are all marks of the believer. Just take a minute, and I want you to look at those nine things and see what are all those things about if you look at them. Any thoughts come to your mind? Yeah. They're all 
about our relationships. Think about that. Ultimately, God is at work in the individual new creation in order to make us what Peter calls us early on, living stones in a spiritual household. So God's work in you and I as individual new creations to perfect us is God making us fit our perfect place in this giant structure called the church. It's a beautiful picture of what we're to be about. It's another thing to be able to look at ourselves and see that authentically taking place. I'd like you to stand with me. I'd like you to insert your name into the following statement. You are God's original masterpiece. For instance, I'm going to say Tommy is God's original masterpiece. We're going to say that together. Ready? Can you do it? How do you feel about it? What's going on inside you right now? You're a new creation in Christ. You have become the righteousness of God. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful and is being faithful right now. Let's embrace that today. Ready? Tommy is God's original masterpiece. You say it for yourself. Let's say it together. Tommy is God's original masterpiece. Father, we embrace that work, and we know that sometimes it's painful because we've already learned in this book that even the darkest seasons of life, you are at work building our faith, growing us. In fact, the best work happens sometimes through the deepest cutting and pain. Yeah, sometimes your work is painful, but it is always good. It is always out of love. You're not condemning and punishing. You're disciplining and building and restoring. Father, may we celebrate that from a God who created us to sing his glory. Amen.